All right, turn your Bibles to Titus. Titus, we're going to be looking at chapter 1, Titus 1, 1 through 4. It can be found on page 998 in the Pew Bible. 998 in the Pew Bible. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we turn to a new letter this morning, a new book this morning, we ask that you would turn our hearts and minds to you to receive this word from you so that we might apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Church growth and church health are hot topics in our day. This week I'm attending the biennial E-Free conference in Chicago. I'll be gone Monday through Friday, and, and one, one of the questions I expect to hear when I talk to people will have something to do with church growth or church size. And so essentially, these questions become a measuring stick of the health of a church or the growth of a church. And so, and so I really wrestle with this, especially as we consider the testimony of Scripture and the New Testament letters as a whole, and how we evaluate a church. How do we evaluate a local church? So I ask, what is it that will make a church thrive? What are the key concerns in Paul's mind when seeking to establish and grow healthy churches? You see, one of the tendencies in, in the churches in the U.S. Is that, is that evangelism and outreach have been overemphasized to the detriment of building up believers in the gospel. This is a, it's a current trend, and I don't know, perhaps it's been happening for more than 20 years. I've noticed it, especially in the last 20 years, that there, that there needs to be a balance between these two realities. And as a result of imbalances, Christianity in the U.S. has produced half-hearted Christians. I saw this especially when I lived in Louisville. It's produced half-hearted Christians that have become too much like the world because we've neglected the, the, the idea of and the responsibility of maturing and mobilizing Christians. And as a result, we, we lose our witness in the world. The church as a whole has ignored the necessity of this progression from faith to knowledge to godliness. And I'm thankful, even as I heard this morning from Nate, that that's what they're seeking to emphasize now in their university, a restructuring of the way in which we make disciples so that we make lifelong laborers of the kingdom. And yet on the flip side, there can be an overemphasis on building up believers, and we can, have, we can end up having little to no concern 
for reaching the world around us or making an impact for the sake of Jesus Christ. There is a danger on both ends of the spectrum. And my hope is that this letter would encourage spiritual growth in the life of our church, of doctrine, of sound doctrine and devotion to godliness, without minimizing our need to witness to the world around us, but that it would become one of the ways by which we make Christ known. This letter has a lot of significance for us in our own day. We'll see that the culture in that day in Crete was similar to our own. And it's filled with, this letter is filled with practical instruction. One writer right, rightly recognizes that the letter to Titus is a discourse on church health. It is a blueprint for planting and building churches that will survive and thrive for the glory of God. Right? These churches were newly established on the island of Crete. Paul had witnessed to them. He left Timothy there, we're gonna, or Titus there. We're going to see this. He leaves Titus there to, to help build up these churches in Christ. And so my hope for us over the next few months that we're going to be spending on this short three-chapter letter is that we would be strengthened to build our lives and live lives that please God as we witness to the world around us. So first, let, let's consider the author. Okay, so we're going, to, we're going to discuss the author, the recipients, the greeting, and then we're going to focus lastly on, on the various themes that we're going to see in the letter. So first, the author. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Notice first part of verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This opening greeting, you could probably see it when I read it, how long it is. It's one long sentence in, in the original. It's one of the longest in Paul's letters. Very similar to Romans. It's a long introductory greeting. Sometimes we're prone to ignore the introduction. And we want to get to the meat of the letter. Right? What's it really about? So we just, we just move right past the intro. But what we'll see and should see in the opening statements is that they are essential because they establish some of the key themes that we're going to see in the letter. And in these opening statements, Paul provides a description of himself and of his purpose in life and in ministry, which reveals some of these key themes. In most of his letters, this is what we hear from Paul. We see statements like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he goes into a discussion on who he's writing to. It was his in 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Timothy. In Philippians, we saw Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And we recognize the significance of that identification as Paul sought to display humility, right, and call the church to humility and sacrificial service. Paul's identification of himself serves a purpose in his letters. And here in this letter, we see that Paul calls himself a servant of God and an apostle of Christ, of Jesus Christ. To describe himself as a servant of God is to put himself on the same line as the Old Testament servants of God, whether it was Moses or Joshua or David or the prophets. They stood in a position, a special privileged position, as those called by God who received special revelation. But even more importantly, 
is the idea that he is a servant. He is a slave, so to speak, who submits to the authority of a master. The idea is that Paul is completely dependent upon God for life and for protection. And we are called in 1 Peter 2.16 to live as servants of God in which we submit to his will and his lordship in our lives. And that's the idea that's being communicated here. Paul is a servant of God, and, his, and God is his king, his lord, his master. Paul is also an apostle of Jesus Christ. You're aware that the apostles in, in the early church were those who had been commissioned by Jesus Christ. They were eyewitness. They gave eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Christ And though Paul was one who was untimely born, the resurrected Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And and he was converted to Christ, and he was converted by Christ. And it was said of him, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Acts 9.15 And that's what we even see here. Having been sent out by Jesus Christ, Paul would make disciples, he'd establish churches, and then he'd return to these churches to strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. And then he would appoint elders for for them in every church. After Paul identifies himself as, as a servant and an apostle, he elaborates on, this, on the idea of, of his ministry and his apostleship. He declares the goal and purpose of his life and his ministry. Notice, notice all of verse 1 now. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. God's elect is a way of referring to God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were, God's, were chosen by God. Under the new covenant, it's, it's not just Israel, but all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is a way of describing those who have been converted to Christ, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And we see here that Paul's purpose in ministry, he's been commissioned by Christ so that people might come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And not only that, His ministry is for the sake of the elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. In other words, Paul is not merely concerned with conversions. The point being made here is that Paul is concerned about their ongoing progress in the gospel, in the truth. Paul's task then is to further the faith of God's people and help them grow in the knowledge of of the gospel, which leads to and produces godly living. From conversion to a transformed life. From justification to sanctification and ultimately to glorification. From new birth and infancy. We heard this from Nate even this morning. From new birth and infancy to mature manhood. Mature Christian character. Knowledge of the truth should lead to godliness. 
It doesn't end with, with conversion or, or knowing the truth. It produces and leads to godly living. What we believe, what we believe will affect and should affect how we live. Do you realize that? What you believe affects how you live. And how you live demonstrates what you really believe. And so the first implication in this opening statement, are you a servant of God yourself? Are you submitting to his lordship in your life? If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that's your identity, servant of God. We, we have an obligation to submit to him as our king. And as servants of God who have already come to know Christ as, as Lord and Savior, our task then in life and ministry is similar, right? We're not apostles, but our task is similar to Paul's as he would carry on this task through Titus and those who would follow. It's similar. Here's our, here's our goal in life and ministry. Here's our responsibility. Here's our task. The salvation of the lost and the growth in godliness in the life of believers. Our concern isn't merely to win people to Christ, but to build them up and then equip them for ministry. And then repeat the cycle. Converted, connected, committed, commissioned. Repeat. Converted, connected, committed, commissioned. Repeat. Win, build, equip, multiply. Win, build, equip, multiply. And then we repeat. Win, build, equip, multiply. Make, mature, mobilize. Repeat. Make, mature, mobilize followers of Jesus. And then we just repeat that cycle. And in verse 2, we see, that it, we see our faith and knowledge of the truth of the gospel leads to godliness. It rests on the hope of eternal life. Notice verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We have a certain and sure hope that those who trust in Jesus Christ and as a result live for him will receive eternal life. We have confidence that we will receive eternal life. It is rooted in our unchanging, eternal God who always keeps his promises. He is the God who never lies. Now, this is quite significant because of the context of this letter. We've already recognized that Titus is the one to whom this letter is written, which we'll elaborate on in point two. But it's for the churches in Crete. In proclaiming God as the one who does not lie, as the unlying God, Paul's tapping into their story that shaped Cretan culture. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he says this, Cretans are always liars. That's what was said. Cretans are always liars. Paul is echoing the traditions that lay at the heart of Cretan society. It's been said that Cretans regarded lying as culturally acceptable. The name Crete 
meaning to play the Cretan or to lie. They were notable for retelling stories of the Greek and Roman gods. They would retell the story of Zeus and claim that he was born and died on Crete. One story about Zeus is that he loved to seduce women. In one one instance, he would resort to lying. So here's this Greek god. He would resort to lying to get what he wanted. So basically, Zeus was a liar and immoral. And the people in Crete took pride in this. Their reputation was religious deceitfulness. They were self-indulgent, immoral, and liars. And that's the context. That's the context for this. And so Paul, against that backdrop, states the God who never lies. God is faithful to his promises. What he had promised in eternity past before time began is now being fulfilled in the present time. The hope of eternal life was promised before the ages began, and it is revealed through the proclamation of God's word by his servants. And so Paul is validating his ministry. That which he proclaims is what he has been entrusted by God with. God is revealing his word through the preaching of it. Your hope of eternal life is rooted in the character of God, who never lies, who always keeps his promises. Our hope of eternal life that God has promised for those who trust in Christ should therefore motivate us then to proclaim Christ and to live for him. It should motivate us. So second, the next two points, are gonna, we're going to move quickly through these because I want to highlight some of the themes in our final our final point that we'll see throughout the letter. So let's, let's consider now the recipient and to whom Paul wrote this letter and what, what's being said about him. The recipient is Titus. Okay, so notice the first part of verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. So Paul writes to Titus. We don't know much about him, but we do know and that he's mentioned several times in 2 Corinthians and Galatians and 2 Timothy. And what we learn about him is that he was one of Paul's co-workers. He partnered with Paul in gospel ministry for the benefit of local churches. He was a Greek. Are you familiar with this in Galatians? He was a Greek. He was not a Jew. wasn't forced to be circumcised. Paul calls him here a true child, a genuine son in a common faith. It's likely that Paul refers to him as a true child because he had some role in Titus coming to faith in Christ. We see this sort of description in reference to Timothy as one to whom he led to the Lord. Paul was Titus's spiritual father, so to speak. And this family relationship language reveals his affection for him, and it affirms the deep bonds that they have in the gospel. There's a closeness in which they share, like a father to a son. But also because this, this father-son relationship, with it comes certain expectations and obligations. As we know in that day, that the sons would carry on the work of the father, typically. They would learn the trade of their father. And so here, it's Titus then who is, who is serving as a delegate for the apostle 
Paul to, to carry on his ministry to, to these newly established churches in Crete. So he's, he's going, he's staying in Crete to now complete and finish the work that, that Paul and Titus had begun. In verse 5, Paul leaves him in Crete to, to finish this, un, to set right unfinished business and to appoint proper leadership. So Titus then is Paul's representative to lead these Cretan churches to make a break from Cretan culture and their value system. And, and Titus, he was a true son, a genuine son in a common faith. It's likely that Paul is highlighting not only their unity in the gospel, right? He, he's a Greek, he's a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles united in the gospel, but also in what they specifically believe, in the content of the gospel and its implications for our lives. A common faith, a shared set of beliefs, is more than mental assent. It's more than mental knowledge and knowing certain facts. It's more than that. But it's not less than that either. It's not a shared, undefined religious experience that sometimes is called faith. It's a common shared belief involving a correct understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And we'll see that even in the greeting. It involves an acknowledgement that God is our Father, from whom all grace and mercy and peace flow, and in an understanding of Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's one of the reasons for a statement of faith in a, in a church. It summarizes the essentials of Christian belief. It shows our unity in the gospel, in Christ, that we're united around the same theological convictions. This is why we have one here at Pleasant Ridge. We're united around the same theological convictions, and it helps us guard against error. And so I would just encourage us that our commonality and the essentials of the gospel has value and significance in doing life together as a family. Third, third, let's consider the, the greeting. Greetings, as we know, even from last week as we concluded Philippians and now transition into Titus, they serve as a blessing, right? A prayer wish for the people. And in this blessing, Paul says at the end of verse 4, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So Paul desires God's grace, God's unmerited favor to be bestowed upon Titus as he carries out the mission and ministry to this church, to these churches in Crete. He prays for peace, that there will be a, a, a restfulness, a, a calmness in the midst of Cretan opposition. Right? There's false teachers that infiltrated the churches. They were seeking to stir up division and controversy and lead the believers away from the gospel. And, and notice, notice what Paul says at the end of verse 4. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the second time in four verses that Paul says, our Savior. Back in verse 3, Paul was entrusted with the word by the command of God, our Savior. And now in verse 4, grace and peace come from God the Father and Christ Jesus, 
our Savior. Do you know how Paul typically greets the churches or the church? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. And here he states, grace and peace come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's significant for a number of, of reasons. We recognize that God our Savior highlights God's deliverance of his people from their bondage in Egypt. God is their Savior, their Deliverer, their Rescuer. Salvation belongs to God. And now Christ as Savior signifies Jesus' sacrificial, substitutionary work on behalf of his people to rescue us from our bondage to sin. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from sin and death. He took the punishment that you and I deserve so that all who trust in him, whether Jew or Gentile, receive the full forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And also, for God to be called Savior and Jesus to be called Savior is to acknowledge that Jesus is God. Distinct from the culture around them in which men became gods, right? That's their culture. Men become gods. Rather, God became man. He is the Son of God incarnate. Jesus came at the appointed time to save us from the penalty of sin, and he is saving us from the power of sin in our day-to-day lives through his Holy Spirit, and he will save us from the presence of sin. And we are awaiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our hope. So fourth and finally, let's consider some of these main themes. The themes, doctrine and devotion. I've titled this, sermon and this series as a whole, Titus, Doctrine and Devotion. I want to highlight the major themes in this book, and that's why I did this. Sound doctrine and devotion to good works. Paul's main concern, and we've seen this in the opening statements, is to provide sound doctrine for the purpose of godly living so that believers can be an example to an immoral society around them. We see sound doctrine throughout the letter. All right, we're going we're to look at several passages here. Notice verse 9. Okay, so 1 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so speaking of an elder, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 13, 113. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. The idea being free from doctrinal error. 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then there's devotion to good works. And we see this throughout. Not as the basis for our right standing with God, 
right? We devote to good works not as the basis for our right standing with God, but as the expression of God's grace in the life of believers, in the life of those who have received, have received God's grace by faith. Good works serve as the evidence of our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. A tree is known by what? By its fruit. Devotion to good works or godly living is the result of the heart that has been changed by God. For example, we do good deeds, good things for our spouses or our parents on special days, maybe today, I don't know. Not merely because we're supposed to, right? Just think about this in general. Not merely because we're supposed to, but because we want to. I have good intentions, but I often fail. Just kidding, you know, I like that. We do these things for our spouses or our parents, not because we're supposed to, but because we want to, out of a love for them, because of the relationship that we have for them. You see? And we'll see in, the, in this letter. Notice, flip to chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people in verse 11. And then verse 13, as we're waiting for, for Christ, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice this, verse 14. Who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. And then in chapter 3, 3 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God, those who have believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 14 is a, is a, 314 is a practical example of this. He says this, And let our people learn to what? To devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And so Paul, what he's doing here, he's tying these themes together. Sound doctrine and devotion to good works for the purpose of witnessing to an immoral world, an immoral society. Sound doctrine, devotion to good works are not merely intended to be the outworking of our faith, but they are to enhance the church's reputation in an immoral society. Have you thought about church in that way? Have you thought about your own conduct in that way? Our behavior should enhance the attractiveness of the gospel with which we, that we believe and proclaim. Let me give you some exa- examples of this in the letter. as how these realities work together. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul declares, teach what accords with what? Sound doctrine. And then he mostly discusses behaviors that should be evident in the life of believers. Now notice, verse, notice why in verse 5. 2.5, that the word of God may not be reviled. In the middle of verse 8, so that an opponent may be, put to sh- may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
Verse 10, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Our conduct should attract people to the message of the gospel. Our actions and godly living should not be a stumbling block hindering people from coming to faith in Christ. And so what we should then do is build each other up. That's my hope. We build each other up, help each other grow in Christ's likeness for the purpose of reaching the world around us. It's been rightly stated regarding this letter that Paul's missionary strategy, think about this for a moment. His missionary strategy is that the church should be an agent of transformation, not through culture wars or assimilation, but through wise participation in culture. Devotion to Jesus and the common good will show the beauty of the message of our saving God. I think what happens is that sometimes we try to become too much like the world in order to reach the world. That's not Paul's strategy or goal. Rather, to summarize, okay, so to summarize the book as a whole, there's four key, this is what I'm seeing in our text as a whole, right, this big picture idea today, there are four key issues that are significant for the health of a local church, okay? These are four issues that we're going to see in this letter. Proper leadership in 1, 5 through 9. Proper handling of error in 1, 10 through 16 and in 3, 9 through 11. Proper living. Okay, so proper leadership, proper handling of error, proper living, gospel-appropriate living, godly living in, in 2, 1 through 10, and then in 3, 1 and 2. That's the third one. And then fourth, proper doctrine. Proper doctrine. Having a clear understanding of the gospel and its implications for our daily lives. In 2, 11 through 15, and 3, 3 through 8. So the goal of this letter, all right? I've said a lot, introductory sermon here with Titus. The goal of this letter for us is to break from the value system of our world by providing sound doctrine that will foster stability in our church so that we might be a witness to to the people around us. So from the outset, let's hold fast to the word of God. Let's seek to live lives that please God. And when we fail and fall short of his glory, which we will, we confess it, we repent of it, we rely upon God's mercy and grace daily. Let's strive to build one another up and grow in godliness in our day-to-day lives so that we might make a difference in our community for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we recognize there is, there is so much here in Titus, just even in the introductory statements, and we just ask that you would just take a word for us, that we would be servants of you, that we'd rely upon you, that we'd submit to your lordship in our lives, that we'd find mercy and grace that we grow and build one another up in godliness and Christian living.
so that we might make a difference in our communities. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.